Yeah, where's it coming from? Let's find out. Welcome to the Six Degrees of John Keel podcast. I'm your host for today, Barbara Fisher, and with me is Susan Demeter. Susan is an experiencer and an author. She wrote The Cosmic Witch, Magic, Witchcraft, and the Supernatural. She's coming to me from Italy. Hello, Susan. It's good to meet you. Oh, it's good to finally meet you, too. Thank you for I know having we, me as a guest. <laughs> oh, thank, you for, thank you for coming on with us. Um, well, I say us but I'm flying solo for the first time, so we'll see what happens. Um, I am very, very interested in the title of the book, The Cosmic Witch, and I'm very interested in the experiences that led you to witchcraft in the first place. So could you sort of outline for us your journey to becoming the cosmic witch? Sure. Um... I think that in in regards to witchcraft, the way I guess most people would cons uh, you know consider witchcraft, I started out like pretty much most young women as a teenager, um, playing around with tarot, uh, playing around with astrology, which I, I got very good at actually, um, and and other things like that. That you know just the the things that teenage girls are drawn to that bring them towards the craft. Um, but literally, I would say Cosmic Witch comes from my experiences with the craft or what you would consider UFO experiences. Um, when I was a child, I had numerous encounters with little beings that frightened me and at some points delighted me, um, shocked me. And I assumed that these beings were ghosts. I knew that they weren't part of our normal reality, that they weren't something, for instance, that my parents might be experiencing or other members of my family or my friends at school. Uh, I knew that this was weird. Uh, and I, but I didn't really have a UFO context to put them in. So I thought that they were ghosts, I guess because like a lot of kids my age, I was watching Scooby-Doo. <laughs> I was attracted to the idea of, of ghosts and that, and, and that's what I thought they were. Uh, and then it wasn't until later in life as a, as a young adult when I had an experience when I was age 23, which in the book Cosmic, which I call an initiation, um, into the idea of magical thinking as an adult. Uh, it was at that point that I had this experience at 23 with another adult. It was my um, brother-in-law that I saw this this uh, large red octagon pulsing orb in the night sky that I started reorienting my thinking and looking back on those childhood experiences and wondering if they were part of the greater um, UFO experience. So that 
that and the idea that, yes, I was always drawn towards um, astrology, working with celestial energies, the moon cycles, uh, comets, things like that. Uh, that's how it all sort of integrated itself, my life experience into becoming the cosmic witch. And consequently, my first book, which was a bit of a surprise to me. I, I, I thought I would write like a straight up UFO book or a book on ghosts and hauntings before I would ever write up something like Cosmic Witch. But again, a series of synchronicities came together that allowed me to write the book. And, and I'm just so proud of it. And I, I feel so good about the book. And yeah. <laughs> it's a really, really interesting book. Um, I've been a practicing witch since I was 15. Um, I initiated myself after an odd experience with the moon, which I can explain in a second. But I, it's different from every other witchcraft book I've ever read. You do have a lot of the usual information about the elements and tools and, and things like that. But then there's all of this other stuff that is fascinating. And I'm particularly thrilled to read your historical information about witchcraft in Italy. Um, because, you know, when I was 15, I was in West Virginia, which is kind of like very backwoods. And when I was in high school, it was the early 80s. And we just did not have books about witchcraft in general in the bookstores. Um, there was one copy of Janet and Stuart Farrar's What Witches Do that was weirdly in my high school library. I don't know. I was the only person who ever checked it out. Um, so I, I'm not sure why it was there. And then in our county library, we had the books by Margaret Murray, uh, the about the survival of the witch cult through the uh, Middle Ages and forward in England, some of which her anthropology has kind of been discredited, but symbolically, it's still relevant. Um, we had The White Goddess by Robert Graves in the, the library, and you could get that one in the bookstores. And then my friend had one copy of Charles Leland's um, the Gospel of Aradia, the or, or Aradia of the Witches, depending upon which edition it was, and of course that's about uh, survival of Italian witchcraft up to the 19th century. Again, there's all this questioning about did he make it up? Was his source making it up? Madalena was she was she making that up? Is it is it actually a a a uh, tradition that came down through the ages or is it a, a folkloric motif that he picked up on and ran with? I don't really care. Neither do um, I. <laughs> I. I've given up on caring about verisimilitude all the time. Mm -hmm. Poetically, it's beautiful. So yes. that's, it's beautiful and useful and therefore it's fine <laughs> as far as I'm concerned. Exactly. Yeah, and one of my friends had taken that book and had initiated herself 
And um, I read it and I was blown away by the poetry. And I read, I, I probably still have little passages of what witches do by Stuart Farrar memorized in my head. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, I think it's really great that you took your initiations, which were outside the usual sort of initiatory experiences that witches and Wiccans and neo-pagans have, you spoke your truth and it makes sense. So I, I think this is a really good book and it's really useful. Um, and as I said, I, I've been doing this for 40 years and I still found things that were interesting and useful in the book. So I think everybody should read it if you're into witchcraft and even if you're into UFOs, because this shows you sort of a cultural lens that you probably as a UFO experiencer or investigator have not clued into. You know, you haven't probably thought about it as a means of initiation into a mystery tradition or a magical tradition. Um, although I will say John Keel thought of that back in the 60s because he said, and I believe it was the Mothman prophecies, when he was experiencing all of these weird things and people were having, you know, the sightings of Mothman, sightings of UFOs, then they started having psychic experiences. And then they started having PK events in their house and poltergeists and voices and everything started happening. He said the people who were familiar with this sort of activity were the occultists, demonologists, and witches. Yeah. I never forgot that. I never forgot that. So, so when, you know, if anybody ever says to you, cosmic witch, UFOs and witchcraft, what? Oh my God. You should just say, well, John Keel hip to that back in the sixties. So. Yeah. yeah. Very, very good to know. Um, so, you know, at my age in life and my point in life, I'm, I really don't care what other people think. Well, I just, I'm at that point yeah, too, I just, yeah. I just do my thing. And, but that is a good point to to bring up that you know john keel was hip to this for sure oh yeah. he knew you know yeah. and and yeah. a lot of his sources who helped him with that sort of overwhelming amount of high strangeness were the occultists witches and and uh metaphysicians so yeah there we are and demonologists mm -hmm. um so i really liked your book um to give you a, an example, because when I read about your uh, red UFO, I was like, I never thought of it this way. But a week before I decided to dedicate myself to the goddess of the moon on the full, well, not a week before, it was a month before, but on the full moon, I had been out with my best friend and my boyfriend at the time. And we had gone to a meeting of a group. It wasn't a coven, but we did do metaphysical work. We did out-of-body stuff. And we wandered around in the astral realm together. And, you know, the very first mm -hmm. time I did that with him, I was like, this is crap. I don't even know what is. And then it started working. And then I yeah. was like, oh, okay, maybe it's not crap. Um, so we had by that point we had been practicing so that it was actually really interesting you know we could kind of see our city from up above and 
you know, then we would try to see things and then later go back and corroborate what we had experienced, you know, looking mm -hmm. down from the sky. And we're walking to my house. We parked the car about a block away from my house because there's no parking on my street. And they were walking me to the house. And the moon was full. And I stopped and looked up at the moon and it was so beautiful. I was like, oh, look at the moon. It's so pretty. And we looked up at the moon and all of a sudden it looked like it split into four moons. There was one that that went off into the eastern quadrant of the sky. There was, and then another one went off into the south and then one in the north and then the moon itself was towards the west. And, and we just stopped in the middle of the street, like, fools and stared as this was going on and wow. i was like what are we looking at and you know the, the it actually was kind of scary because you know did the moon split we had not had any inebriance of any sort to to do anything like that i was like did we not ground and center well enough did i mean are we still yeah. half astral what <laughs> The moon's not supposed to do that. And, you know, finally, at, when a car, like, was honking at us, we moved to the sidewalk and didn't get hit. But it was just so confusing. I think it lasted about a minute before the, the moons just sort of all zipped back together into where it was supposed to be attached to the regular moon. I never thought of that as a UFO thing, ever, until I read and your book. Yet. <laughs> oh, my God. The closest I ever came is when I first read about Fatima mm -hmm. and the, the, when the sun comes yeah. in the sky and dances around and all these colors. And that was the closest thing. But, you know, and even though authors will go, that sounds like a UFO experience in Fatima. Look at that. Doesn't that sound interesting? And you know, my brain kind of went, yeah, that does sound interesting. But did it go back to the moon? No, it did not. So I find that extremely yeah. interesting that I didn't even cotton to that, as as we say in Appalachia. I didn't cotton to that. Yeah. I, I didn't catch that. And now I in reading it, I just was like, oh my God. And Morgana, my daughter, caught it right away and was like, Mom, that's just like you with the moon and the thing. Cause you know, yeah. the next moon you you went and dedicated yourself. I was like, Yeah, that is weird. That is strange. There's, there's a there is a connection there for sure. Yeah, you know, like now that that you see that, you can't unsee it, and it is. It works almost like an initiatory uh, experience. It's you're initiated by this moon, um, which is beautiful. It really yes. is, and I view my experiences as beautiful as well. Although they can be, as with anything, initiation is painful because of the idea that, you know, there's such an ostracization of people who are magical thinkers in our modern society. Um, you know, there's, there's that pain in that, never mind, you know, coming out and saying, hey, I've experienced a UFO, which in itself is also can have painful consequences for the people oh, who yeah. are brave enough to, to come forward with that. So, yeah, no, I, I, I definitely see that. I think that's so cool. And, it, yeah. and it's, again, it just kind of blew my mind. And then I, you know, I kept reading your book. And yeah, I've had weird experiences with little creatures, beings, what whatever they are. 
Mm-hmm. Um, as some friends and I called them for a while, um, nothings. Yeah. What's that? Oh, nothing. Yeah. Oh, nothing. Yeah. Um, also, you have the little poem about the, I met a man upon the stair. Mm-hmm. You know. Um, yeah. I really wish it. Uh, let's see. He he shouldn't. It, it's I'll now I yeah. can quote it. I used to know that, but um, we have a a creature in this house that we call the thing on the stairs, mm-hmm. and it's just this little shimmer of a being that some people have seen as a humanoid figure. Um, I almost always just see it as a gray shimmer in the air and it will sort of drift down the steps and then sit down near the bottom of the steps. If anybody's talking about interesting stuff in the living room and and it will sit and listen. It likes stories. We have have one here too. He likes to play little tricks, but you know, I acknowledge him and just let him know he can chill, but not, you know, as long as the tricks aren't nasty, I'm okay with him being around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So, thing on the stairs is is one of my little beings that's been around. But he came with the house, though. Mm-hmm. He he wasn't one of mine that came with me. He was he was part of the house, and we've yet to figure out what he is. It's nice to be able to acknowledge our house spirit and um, and let the local spirits know you know, that we're grateful to be in their space. Uh, I try to remember to do that all the time because I'm, I'm new to Italy. I've only been living here two years. So I'm still getting integrated with the local nature and the spirits that are around here. And, and it, it really, it's different. It's different than in North America on a magical level as well too. But it's it's really nice. It's really I live in a in an area surrounded by nature. I, I came from Toronto, which is a major major city. You have about four million people to a village of you know I think 13, <laughs> 14 people. So wow. it's, it's there. Yeah, it's it's different. It's different. We get a little more in the summertime because I live up in the mountains, so we get hikers that come through here and. There are a lot of Roman runes and Etruscan runes and that. So people do come up more in the summer when, you know, when we're not in pandemic, but, um, but otherwise. So it's been really nice. I've been able to spend time in nature um, and, and really working with the local spirits has been really, really enriching for me. So. Can you tell us (laughs) a little bit about the, the differences and, and, and what your local spirits are like and, how you're learning about them. I hear the first thing I noticed for me is that when I'm out here in the nature and I'm surrounded by 1600 hectares of, of nature preserve, we have wolves, we have all sorts of things here, um, which, you know, I didn't have in Toronto, but (laughs) um, you know, it's, it's different is that in general, the spirits of the land here are, much more in tune with the people. There's much more harmony with the people. And I guess because there has been civilization here going back into the ancient pagan times. Whereas in Canada, um, when I was outside of, of the city and when I would go on camping trips up in, you know, crown land where, you know, you have no electricity, no nothing. There's nobody around for, you know, miles and miles and miles. You're not going to even run into a park ranger there. I found much more wilder spirits. They felt much more, um, 
I guess, suspicious of humans. They were wild. They were, you know, we're here. I think there's a lot more harmony, if that makes sense. And and like I said, it's it's still, um, it is, it's a Catholic country. Uh, there are altars set up for uh, the Blessed Virgin everywhere. <laughs> and people do go and put fresh flowers and things. And in my mind, well, they're worshiping a goddess. Goddess mm -hmm. really doesn't care who you, what name you, you label her you know but you are worshiping and keeping mind and and thinking about these things and so i find it's 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 nice it's very it's very beautiful here yeah mm -hmm. i i think it's i think it's interesting that that you know you brought out that there are all of these altars to marry if i was there i would totally leave flowers at those altars and i I'm not even an ex-Catholic. I, mm -hmm. I was I was raised nominally Protestant, and mm -hmm. not even well, you know, not even one flavor of Protestantism. We kind of, you know, went from church to church, and you know, so mm -hmm. Mary, you know, is kind of a concept that the Protestants kind of went, oh, we don't need that, uh, which. I disagree with but whatever nobody asked my opinion so <laughs> but yeah i would completely and i would feel like the spirit around that altar would be fine with that because again yeah. she's she's the mother yeah. so it's queen of heaven the mother mm -hmm. of god all of those epithets are epithets that goddesses have carried since the beginning of worship near as we can tell yeah though so there's some um, and what's happened is is there are chapels here like uh where i my office is my office studio it faces out towards a mountain peak which is one of the more higher peaks in the region and on top of that is an eighth century chapel which is the site of a black madonna um, which I think believe signified worship in Isis. I know in, in Bologna, there are chapels that are quite ancient that are built over sites that were actual temples to Isis. Now, in this case, the temple that, or the, the, the chapel that is built um, for the Black Madonna actually sits over top Etruscan runes, which I recently posted a little video um, where I like to go and meditate because it's it's quite like a, it's it's quite isolated. People do go in the summer; they make pilgrimages there, but often you can get there and there'll be nobody there. And I like to just go and you know and 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 trance out in the Etruscan part. But again, it's like the, these are ancient ancient sites. They were worshipped by the pagans and the early Christians. Um, and so the spirits there are quite, they're, they're still there. They're quite lively and they haven't forgotten. And in my opinion, they really don't, it doesn't matter to, to what name you're giving them when you're making an offering at an altar. It's yeah. just that you're doing it. Yeah. This is just my opinion, but, uh, but I, I, I like being in those spaces. And one of the things too is with the, um, the Etruscans, they felt that this spot was a place where they would commune, they would get, um, uh, they would do divination and they would get insights and, and they would commune with their gods. And they were drawn there apparently by lights. Now, the, the more 
you know, I guess conservative historians or anthropologists and that they're going to explain this as lightning. Well, it's, it's very tall. They would see lightning and it was lightning that they were using to communicate. But I have to wonder if it was more light phenomena because all in this area of Italy, there is light phenomena and where this light phenomena appears, my, my husband, he's an astrophysicist uh, by day and, and chases UFOs by night kind of thing. <laughs> he, he has investigated several of these places, including in Italy, um, and where these lights appear that, you know, we could consider to be UFOs or spook lights are also, uh, if you go back into antiquity, were places where the Etruscan people, the Villanovan people before them, um, and some of the ancient Celtic people on the east eastern part of um, Italy here would worship their gods, and they were drawn there because of the light phenomena. So it's it, there's an interesting connection there as well. That is fascinating. Um, light phenomena is something that I'm really fascinated by um, because my very very first experiences of anything strange when I was very, very young were very small lights that would spark in my room, just mm -hmm. and not during a storm or anything, but at night when the, the, all the lights in the house were off, there would be flashes. They weren't phosphenes either, which is what you see when your eyes are trying to gather all of the light in, in the room so you can have night vision. Um, that's a, completely different thing. These were larger and they lasted longer, you know, uh, phosphine or like little, little specks of light that just kind of sort of pepper around in your vision. These were about the size of a golf ball and they wow. would flash on and then last for, you know, a couple seconds and then off and they sort of would float around and even as a young child, I was like, am I seeing that? What is going on? But when the cat that slept with me, so would she'd see it. So mm -hmm. I decided, okay, if, if the cat can see it, then it's probably there. So when I, you know, yelled for mom, they went away, of course, as soon as she got into the room and she said, oh, you're dreaming. And then I was like, no, the, the, the kitty saw it. And, and she was like, oh, you, ju you just dreamed that she did. And, you know, the cat and I are looking at each other like, mm, yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> and so I didn't tell mom about the little lights ever again. Yeah. Uh, and that's when it started. And then I didn't see lights like that for a long time until I moved to Athens, Ohio. And the trees and the, the woods here are just lousy with those lights. They, I didn't know that when I moved here. Um, some friends of mine didn't know that. Um, they came here to go to, to OU, to go to college. And uh, I got a phone call one night. And it was, it was my friends, Brad and Janet. And they said, hey, there's this thing. It's happening in our woods. And I'm like, what? Because woods kind of go all the way through this town. Um, and we're kind of surrounded by state and national forest land. So... There's all kinds of stuff that happens here, you know, with wildlife running through the streets and things. And it's whatever. We don't have the running of the bulls. We have the running of the deer, you know, <laughs> yeah. through, the, through the streets. Um, and I was like, well, what do you mean what's happening? And, and, and they were like, there are lights in the woods. And I was like, oh, 
well, that's weird. And they're like, come over. So I did. And my husband, Zach, never saw them for the longest time. But I could see them and they looked like, you know, this is back in the 90s. So mm -hmm. like 1993, they, we didn't have LED lights at that time. But they looked like what LED lights look like now. But they were bobbing around. They were moving. And I was like, well, you know, we're near the hot highway. It's not much of a highway. But we're near the highway here. Maybe that's just headlight. Oh, that's pink. No, that light's pink. And that light's purple. Okay. Okay. Wow. That's that's not headlights, right? You know, it, yeah. we're all in agreement. No, nope, that's not headlights. And it started to happen that every time we were over at their house, a rotating group of our friends would see those lights. Zach was getting mad because he wasn't seeing anything. Um, and even my friend uh, Brad's dad came over to help fix some plumbing and he happened to look out the kitchen window and this is at night and he says, hey, uh, Brad, what's what's all those lights down there? What's going on? What are those? And that's when Brad said, um, nothing, dad. And that's why we started calling them the um nothings. And <laughs> because I grew up with fairy lore mm -hmm. and fairy poetry and fairy stories, I decided they were like Willow the Wisps, you mm -hmm. know? And I was like, well, that's what they are. And so that I, I had it in my mind that they were fairies. Mm -hmm. um, and it's not a bad idea because if you, as, as they're described, that's what they look like, you know? And, exactly. Uh, I've, we've been seeing these off and on. Uh, there are shapes in them sometimes. Sometimes mm -hmm. there are beings of light that go moving around in the woods and all kinds. This has been going on, you know, so we lived here for five years. Then we moved away and we came back mm, about 10 years later. And now we've been here for 14 years. So almost 20 years. And in between, we have heard from other people who have seen the lights in various parts of this area in the woods. So, you know, I was like, okay, this is Athens. Athens is weird. Maybe it's, it's just about Athens. And then I read about in the exact same time period in the 1990s, in the Ural Mountains, mm -hmm. Jacques Vallée had a case that he examined and that people tied it with UFOs. Mm-hmm. And then I read about a case down in Mexico where Artie Six Killer Clark mm -hmm. was out into the out in the wilderness near the sacred sites down there, and there were these little golf ball sized lights coming really close and flying around her and doing all these things. I wrote them both letters. I was like, okay, <laughs> this this happens in Ohio too. Not nearly as exciting as the Ural Mountains or Mexico, but this exactly. is strange stuff but you know what's interesting is it's the same exact phenomena and mm -hmm. we're giving different meanings to it to her it was the ancestor spirits to me mm -hmm. it was fairies to the people in the ural mountains it was ufos to you in italy to the etruscans it was the gods and the spirits talking exactly and the same um, thing. yeah no there's a, there's very close to us there is a lake it's much higher up in the mountains in the apuan alps and it's called Lago Santo, and it, which is, translates to the Holy Lake. And people do, do pilgrimages up there. But for centuries and centuries and centuries, there's been identical to what you've described, light phenomena. And I've seen it. 
we went up there. Um, we took a break uh, last June, um, and we went. We decided to go up there because during pandemic, you don't want to be around a bunch of people, and this is yeah. like way up in an alpine refuge in the mountains. And so we went up there and and uh, we tried to take some photos and that, of course, the camera wasn't working. I had a flashlight in hand. It, it literally fell apart in my hand. And and then it, you know, when we got back to the, the Alpine Refuge, it was just, my husband was able to put it right back together. And it was like, oh, it's, there's nothing wrong with it. And, you know, we thought it was broken. It was in pieces, but it's the same sort of thing. And it's, it looks uh, bigger than a firefly, but lights that dart across the lake and 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 across into the forest area, and uh, it, it's it. There's folklore. There's folklore around it. In Italy, they considered it a, a like almost like a siren or a witch that it was part of the lake, and that these these lights were to to draw people in. And there's similar places in Germany as well that also have these small light balls and they all have their own folklore and, and, uh, and, and yeah, so it's, it, I think it is the same thing and we're just putting our own interpretations on it, but it, it is definitely yeah. part of nature um, and all over the world. It's so exciting. I've, I've seen them in Canada as well. Uh, I did an investigation of a spook light on Skugog Island, which was sacred native land at one point. Uh, and the indigenous people had stories about these lights. And then the early settlers I was able to find in the in the local library uh, talked about devil's lights. Uh, and when we went up there and we investigated, it was funny because um, we saw a lot of various light phenomena. The main light phenomena that people were reporting, we, we were able to prove was car headlights. Right. But, but even in t in doing that, we saw other lights that could not possibly fit into that explanation and apparitions and other weird things that were going on in these these haunted woods and this this place. Uh, and there are places like that all over the world. And and yeah, there's it's just what we're we're defining them as that changes or the folklore that surrounds them. But they're they're the same thing, I think. I, I think you're right. Uh, I, I'm doing research to write a book about it because, you know, it blew my mind the first time I listened to Strange Familiars with Tim Renner. And mm -hmm. he starts talking about, well, you know, Chad and I went out in the woods and there's these lights and, you know, and he has whole episodes about the lights. And I was like, oh, my God, in the way he describes them. So, I, of course, I had to write him a letter. I always write people letters. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I was like, these lights. I've seen them. And so, you know, we talked and he had me on his show and I was like, these lights are, you're seeing them in, in with Bigfoot phenomena. I saw it with fairies. Mm -hmm. They're witch lights. Um, I've, I've spoken with um, other people. They've, they've been seen up in Ithaca, New York. They've been seen all along the Appalachian mountains, actually. It, it, mm -hmm. I might narrow my focus to the Appalachians, but I don't know because they seem to be worldwide. But these little little lights, and they come up close to some people mm -hmm. and do all sorts of weird things. <laughs> like like I had them come into my house in Athens when we lived, you know, in this ramshackle cottage that was up against woods that were really haunted. And there was one night I I, I came out of my bedroom and the living room was full of the darn things. Wow. And I was just like, 
oh, oh no, you know, I really need to get through there because I really need to go use the bathroom. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of my cats who, you know, would, she was a very strange cat. She, she would run around the house during the day like she was chasing something up in the air. Mm -hmm. But there was nothing, you know. Yeah. The first time we were like, oh, it's a gnat or she's chasing a, one of the, a Miller moth or something. No, there was nothing there. When I went out there, and saw them all like, you know, dancing around my living room and my dining mm -hmm. room. She was chasing them. And I was yeah. like, oh, that probably means they're floating around invisibly in the daytime in my house. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> so I, I, I did. I just said to the air, I said, hello, y'all. Can you please just kind of, I don't know, let me get to the bathroom. I have to go through where you are. I don't want to bump into you. I don't want to bother you, but can I please? And they, they literally did sort of shift over a couple feet to give me a clear path to walk through. Mm -hmm. And I ran to the bathroom, did my stuff, flushed the toilet, came, you know, slowly out looking and making sure the path was still there. And so I ran to the bedroom door and then they, they erased the path. They went dancing right along and my cat's running around the house playing with them my other cats are hiding from them so she was special yeah. um I, and it was just so strange well did and she so that did, did she grow up with them like the other two because i have found that um in regards to my cats uh when they grow up with this type of phenomena they, they don't seem to have a fear they think it's normal and it's, yeah. it's only if you move in somewhere with, you know, cats that don't, you know, that don't normally have these types of experiences, then it's like, oh, this is weird. <laughs> They're more cautious, you know? Yeah. Ether, we did get in Athens. We got her as a young adult cat. Um, she had heterochromous eyes and she was white with a spot of mm -hmm. black right over her where her third eye would be if she oh. had one and uh she was she had epilepsy too she was a little bit odd and uh so we did get her here and the other cats that we had were mostly from elsewhere um i also had my cat that i called my familiar because she mm -hmm. she really was a strange cat and she was born on my grandparents farm in west virginia but weird stuff happened out there too. So she wasn't afraid of it. She just didn't like it in her house. Ah, she was, this is my house. <laughs> yes, she was very protective. So floating she, around here. <laughs> yeah, so she would sit, you know, on the couch and growl at them. Mm -hmm. Or if she saw them outside at night, because they would float past the windows and, mm -hmm. and everything. And she would sit in the window and growl, like, don't come in. Yeah. So, you know, she was, she was, but the other ones, so, some of them were definitely afraid, but Ether wasn't. She thought they were great. She, she just, <laughs> they were her peeps, I guess. She just went <laughs> flying after them and chasing them and they'd sort of bob just mm -hmm. above her head. And if she reached up to swipe, they'd bob just out of her reach. And I was like, she's she playing with like, them. <laughs> yeah. I was like, okay, y'all yeah. just good night. See you later. Please don't be here when I wake up in the morning because that's too much. My Zach yeah. did finally see them. Uh, he saw one red one the last night that we stayed in that house. Mm -hmm. 
um, he he was laying on his back and he looked up at the ceiling and it, he said it looked like a laser pointer, except it wasn't landing. It was in mid midair. Uh, of course, lasers have to keep going. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And he was like, whoa. And I went, oh, do you see that? And he's like, yeah. <laughs> he's like, and so, you know, he gets up and he's going to all the windows in the room. Yeah trying to see where the the beam of light could be coming from there. He couldn't interrupt the beam of light because there wasn't one. It was self-contained. Wow. And yeah, he was just like, oh my. And he's like, so you see this stuff all the time? And I said, not all the time, all the time, but a lot of the time. He's like, no wonder you don't sleep. I'm like, yeah, yeah. And he said, I'm glad we're moving. <laughs> <laughs> So he did at least see that one. And then he yeah. saw them in the woods where we moved to one time and they were all blue that time and they were really fascinating. Yeah, definitely. Um, and, and that's the thing, like I find, cause you, cause you had said like they, they more or less let you in peace to, to do your business and to go to the bathroom is that if you talk to these things respectfully and you, you know, you just say, look, you know, I, I don't mind sharing my space with you or I'm, you know, you're sharing your space with me, but there has to be some ground rules. And you so when we said, yeah, when we set these ground rules, I think in, for the most part, for me, I've never really had a problem with them or any real spirits, but I do try to, you know, I don't want to live out a horror movie. I don't want to. So I just, I, I, I absolutely just shut that down. You know? Yeah. <laughs> so, um, and that's one of the things about being a witch that's good yeah. because you know nobody teaches magic 101 in in grade school so no. that you learn how to talk to the spirits and lay these ground rules so uh -huh. that's one of the really great things about being a witch because yeah. you can you can you have tools you have you know ways to talk and, and learn how to concentrate your energy and your power to, to make literal boundaries. Exactly. And it's, it's, I learned this technique from a witch, a lady by the name of Ashley, who um, goes, uh, she calls herself the white witch of Niagara. And I learned this many, many years ago from her in regards to ghosts and hauntings, because she did help with the, you know, calming down of spirits in people's homes. And she would say, look, even if you just consider this a magic placebo, um, if you take ownership of your space and you lay down some ground rules, things will calm down. And I, this is something that I would tell people um, when I was running a website, when I had the para-researchers website and then later the SciCan website, um, people would contact and sometimes they'd be very frightened. And I would say, the first thing you should do is really try to take ownership of your space um and see where that works and for me personally because i've also lived in haunted homes and i see ghosts occasionally sometimes full apparitions um i do try and take you know I i'm always very respectful but i expect that as well in return so this yeah. is my approach to it and so far you know I, I i've been lucky that way i guess that i i you know when i see these little things these little light balls and that i'm enchanted by them um, yeah. and, and that is a nice relationship to have yeah. with these beings. Yeah. And, and I do think that 
you're absolutely right about taking ownership of your space. You know, you don't have to be a jerk about it, mm -hmm. you know. Um, you just have to, it's like making a boundary. If, you, if you've ever had therapy and you learn about toxic relationships, mm -hmm. and they will tell you, you know, make a personal boundary uh, for your own sanity and mental health and well-being so you have ground rules for a relationship well you know you can do that with spirits too yes you know mm -hmm. and i i finally before we started this podcast i came out to my therapist that yes i do see spirits and yes that's why my art looks like it does and yes i'm an animist and yes i'm a witch and yes weird stuff happens around my house and i'm telling you all of this finally because I'm about to start a paranormal podcast and I want to know if you think I'm crazy. And she said, no, you're not crazy. And I said, okay, all right, then we're, then we're square. And she goes, but I do still want to talk about this a little bit. Let's back up. She's like, is, so the things that you paint are those things that you've experienced? And I said, yeah, a lot of it. And part of the reason the colors are the colors that they are, that really bright color is because that's kind of how I see things. That's, you know, that's part of my, she's like, she wanted to know from an art perspective. She didn't really want, yeah. <laughs> want to know from a therapy perspective. She was like, and I, so I told her and she said, well, now talk to me about witchcraft. She was like, you know, what's it like? And I said, well, it's kind of like, and the reason that I, I got along with therapy so well when I finally showed up here is because working with spirits and it's all about boundary making. You cast mm -hmm. a circle. Well, that's mm -hmm. a boundary. And so when you started talking boundary, I'm like, yeah, cast a circle. Yeah. It works for humans. <laughs> mm -hmm. Oh my God. You know, the light bulb went off and I was like, I knew that all along. I just didn't transfer the knowledge over. Oh, okay. You know, and so relationships got healthier. But yes, mm -hmm. you can definitely do that with with non-physical, non-human intelligences as well. Exactly. And always coming from a, a place of respect. A you place know, I, I feel yeah, like they exactly. would be respectful to you if you were respectful to them. Of course. And that's, that's I think, a key to working with spirits. Um, it's also a key to people who are just going out and investigating these things. You have to go in um, with the knowledge that you're, you're in another being space and you have to be respectful. Um, yeah. you know, and just keep it, be aware of that in, in everything you do, you know, that's how I try to, I, I try to treat others as they would, you know, as, as I want to be treated. So, yeah. yeah. And that trans, I, I, and it translates to the light bulbs, the, the ultra terrestrials, the extraterrestrials, whatever they may be, you know, yeah. the elementals. Sure. Yeah. I think, I think that if we're, I, I wrote a post called Miss Manners Guide to Ghost Hunting because, you know, uh, people watch the ghost hunting shows and they get the idea that going into a house and riling up whatever may or may not be there is a great idea. Mm -hmm. This is not a great idea. Mm -hmm. I'm like, okay, so you're either going in with one or two, one of three possibilities. One, that it's not a ghost, that it's some natural phenomena or a noise that's coming through the heating system or whatever. I love the the show that has plumbers who, who were running it because they could always find the weird noises <laughs> that your house makes. I yeah. thought that was great. 
um, so, you know, it's, it's either your plumbing or your heating system, or it's the spirit of a dead human, or it's something that's a spirit that was never a human. So mm -hmm. if it's your plumbing, whatever, you can be rude to your plumbing, that, whatever. Although if you're an animist, maybe being rude to your plumbing isn't is not idea. a good idea. No, <laughs> but if you're not an animist, okay. Yeah, whatever. That's your problem. If the plumbing breaks because you were rude, don't come crying to the animist who'd say, well, you were rude. Yeah. Uh, the, the second possibility <laughs> is you're in a dead human space, a place that used to be their house. Why are you yelling to, at them? Would you go to a person's house who's alive living in the house and yell at them. Mm -hmm. No, most people wouldn't. I mean, some people probably do, but it's not a, it's not. That's not socially acceptable. No, <laughs> no, you don't do that. And then three, if it's a non-human, never was human entity who can make itself invisible and maybe affect the physical realm anyway, maybe you hadn't ought to upset that entity. <laughs> Exactly. You know, exactly. It just seems to me that, that that sort of thing, besides being sort of a crappy thing to do from a manners perspective, it's kind of dumb. <laughs> and, and, yeah, well, yeah. And it, and it can leave the people that actually have to live in, in these places in a much worse place than yeah. they started off because then you're riled up all this uh, psychic energies and, uh, and it, it can be worse, right? Yeah, exactly. So, so that, that's why I wrote that. I was like, okay, let's try some mutual respect and honesty and not upsetting anything that's there already. And then, you know, wandering off cause you don't live there. Exactly. <laughs> oh, well, we didn't find anything. Goodbye. Oh, that's yeah. Nice. Well, that's definitely a much needed article for sure. Oh, thank you. Yes. <laughs> um, why don't you mention Saikan? Why don't you talk a little bit about Saikan? Okay, Saikan, um, which is uh, a group that I founded. It's more now it's the group is disbanded. And, and now it's just a, a repository of reports uh, in regards to Canadian um, UFO cryptozoology ghost and hunting and at one point we had a bunch of people from all over Canada that were um, contributing to the SciCan website and databases. Uh, we participated with EuroSci which was a project out of Edinburgh, Scotland in the Coestler unit on poltergeists and other things and that basically the research aspect came um, I helped to co-found it out of my own uh, initiative, which is the para-researchers. Uh, and that started off literally with uh, three young women going out and investigating a spook light. And a lot of that came from the fact that I was having these experiences. I've always been interested in, in all the different paranormal type stuff. And I probably would have been even if I didn't have these experiences. I mean, who doesn't love, you know, ghosts and spooky stuff and things like that and uh and so that all came out of this um wanting to go out to these locations and and you know seeing what we could find out about them so that that um was a huge project and and took up a lot of my um my hobby time when my kids were younger uh collecting reports talking to people 
And I've really found that when you go and meet with people personally and you start speaking to them and you let them know that you're a sympathetic listener, that you're just not there, you know, like a cop trying to get all this information, yeah. you know, what does it look like? What is it? Da, 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 um, that there was a whole wealth of information that would come out. Um, so for instance, I would go and talk to people that had UFO experiences and then um, they would give me, say in an email or in a form, a very basic idea of what they saw. But when I would meet with them in person, I would get a lot deeper into um, the experience. And then I'd find out things, for instance, like a person that might've had a UFO experience as an adult grew up in a haunted house or mm -hmm. they were having other experiences, which then makes you wonder, well, is there a specific type of person that is more likely to experience these things? Um, I know that Jeff Ritzman, the late Jeff Ritzman, worked on a project, um, I think it was Project Core, where they did actually look at the witnesses and, and where they were coming from. And there were some things that were interesting, such as um, I think that that more Celtic people with Celtic origin uh, were having these types of experiences, or at least were more comfortable reporting them, uh, things of that nature. So that really it 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 helped me as a researcher um, through going through SciCan um, and then broadening my horizons because now I live in Italy, um, looking at other people's experiences, and uh, and it, it helps me with my own. Um, as well, my research into exceptional human experience. And then I was doing this with the Canadian military as well for a while, <laughs> which is yeah, a story into that. itself. <laughs> so because of the SciCan website, um, and I was uh, at the time, Sci being Sci and Can for Canada, um, I attracted the attention of... Uh, Eric Willette, who is a professor of sociology for the Canadian Defense Studies Department, who happened to be very interested in UFOs from a parapsychological point of view. So through my work with SICAN, he we got together um, as research uh, collaborators, because I also started becoming far more interested in the high strangeness and things that would fall in the domain of parapsychology that people do experience other than just a nuts and bolts craft, so to speak. Um, I'm very interested in, in symbolic content when it comes to UFO experiences, uh, that kind of thing and uh, psi and and psychokinesis and ghosts and things like that. I, I wrote a, a chapter in Robbie Graham's UFO Reframing the Debate book, um, which covers the parapsychological hypothesis. And so because of that, and Eric um, was able to, to re get some research funding money into our our mutual interest. So on behalf of the Canadian military and the Defense Studies Department, I was studying UFOs for a while. Um, and in particular, uh, official reactions to UFOs versus from various military versus um, uh, other reactions that would, would say be more internalized within the military itself. So that was rather eye-opening for me. And then from there we developed uh, research techniques, which became his book, which is Illuminations, which really examines UFOs 
from the idea that it is psi-based and potentially coming from within ourselves or a greater, greater collective unconsciousness. So, yeah. <laughs> so my, my, my UFOs also, the whole UFO experience, not only did it, you know, take, take shape of all my spirituality and, in, and inform my witchcraft, it also for a while was informing my very work. So, <laughs> yeah, definitely. yeah. Yeah, so it's it's definitely been a huge, huge component of my life. Um, at some points, I guess maybe a bit of a detriment to it, but at other points, absolutely not. And and like I said, all of this is morphed into into becoming the cosmic witch. That's fascinating. Yeah. I love that. Yeah, yeah. It, I, as um, you were talking, and you said Eric Ouellette, I'm like, I've read that book. <laughs> and I'll have to put it in the show notes because I try to put every time that we mention books in this podcast, I try to put the books in the show notes. That's why I was taking a note so that I'd remember to put that in there. <laughs> well, it's a, it's a little hidden gem and I don't think that it got as much attention as it deserved from the no. UFO community because he basically, he's not saying that there is no ETH. He's just saying, at this point in time, it's very unsatisfying um, because there's no hard evidence. Um, and then we looked and, and as much as we, and he has a very high security clearance, as much as we looked, we really didn't find any much more amongst the military than what you can find with the actual experiencers who are going out and, and, and seeing and interacting with these beings and this, these crafts. So, and he himself is, you know, he doesn't hide the fact he has had UFO experience and his family had UFO experience. But the, the mainstream interpretation of it's nothing, which he knows is incorrect, and the fact that, you know, or, or it must be ETH or extraterrestrial, if it's not nothing, was unsatisfying to him. So from there, he decided to look at it through different lenses. And when you look at the high strangeness, the real weird stuff that accompanies a lot of these UFO experiences, then the parapsychological tools help. They're yeah. not necessarily giving 100% an answer, but they're just a different way of looking at things. And when you look at things from a different lens, sort of, and I find the parapsychological way almost the same as looking through the eyes of the witch because you're looking at the symbolic content, you're looking at things in a very different way than just in the nuts and bolts science way. Right. So by doing that, by, by look, taking a completely different approach, something else can come out of that that might be just a little bit more information to help move us forward in our knowledge as in consensus reality and, and as, 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 as a species, as, as humans, you know? These yeah. are important questions, in my opinion. Are we alone? Um, you know, and, and and what happens to us after we pass on? Like these these are the big ones. So, <laughs> right? Yeah, I I I read his book a while back and and loved it. Um, right now, speaking of of Psy, you're working on a group project to manifest. UFOs, and you were thinking about manifesting uh, uh, an alien, right? 
kind of yeah. like the Philip experiment, but then you, you thought about that a little harder and went, mm, maybe not. Why don't you explain all of that um, for the listeners? Okay. Because I know what the Philip experiment is, but not everybody does. Well, the Philip experiment was a series of experiments carried out in the 1970s in Toronto, where I'm from, um, which is probably how I first found out about it. I, I found a, a, a in a used bookstore, I think it was like $4 a copy of Conjuring Philip, which was a first a edition. Book. Yeah, I got this book and I was blown away by it. I'd never heard of this before. Um, and this was in the 1990s and it intrigued me. And then I, I kind of went out of my way to try and meet some of the characters involved. Now the, I did never met the Owens, but I did meet uh, Joel Wheaton, who was the psychiatric consultant on this experiment. So what they were trying to do was to see if they could create a ghost, literally um, out of a, a fictional narrative using techniques, visualization techniques, creating a narrative together, and doing old-fashioned seance. Um, the reason that they, they decided to use the fictional narrative was to just prove concretely that this, this couldn't be a real deceased person's personality that survived. This has to be something that we conjured, that we made up. Because this is what the Owens were trying to prove, that, that poltergeists and ghosts are something that manifest from inside ourselves and really don't have anything to do with dead people. This was what they were trying to prove anyway. So they set this, this scenario out. I, I talked to Joe Wheaton about how they picked the people to take part in the experiment. And what he told me is they pooled different people from different walks of life, but they all had some things in common. First of all, they were screened to make sure there was no, you know, psychological or psychiatric issues. Okay. Because you, you can't, you don't want to hurt somebody. You don't want to hurt somebody. There, there has to be like ethics behind these, these experiments. And uh, then after that, what they did is they got uh, each one to bring their favorite childhood story, pick a character from the story and act it out in front of the, the, the scientists. And they did that because they were looking for people who were creative and playful. But it, other, other than that, there was nothing really that they were, they, they were screening for. So they got their group of people together. It took them a few months to really get set up. They created this fictional story about this man, Philip. They gave details to him that could not possibly be true from a historical point of view. They mishmashed up histories and things like that. So his time frame and his life just couldn't be, at least, from, right. you know, historically. Unless he was a time traveler. Unless <laughs> there is none of that. Exactly. So they fixed, so they, they, did this at the same time they sketched him they gave him an appearance and that and then they started using the old victorian type table where they would sit around the table they would do a seance they would they would talk to philip and eventually they started getting these wraps just like you would the you know two two knocks for yes one knock for no they were answering questions and as they you know, became cohesive as a group, more and more psychokinetic type things began to happen. They had levitation of this table. Eventually, they were able to take it to a television studio in uh, Toronto. And all of this was filmed by the TV studio. They made a film out of it, Conjuring Philip. They actually took the table and some of the participants to Ohio, to the Ohio State University, where there were physicists that sort of proved that there's no trickery here. And they were trying to measure the knocks themselves, uh, the sound, 
to find out what was going on behind that. So eventually the, um, the group itself uh, disbanded and they, they tried different experiments. They had hoped to get an apparition and that never, they were never able to manifest the apparition, but they did do like all the poltergeist type stuff that, and this was recorded quite well. So I was very interested in that. And I thought, you know, maybe this could be applied to the alien question. Can we conjure an alien pilot? But the difference is, is I think that with, with dead people, okay, they're still human beings. But with aliens, they're not. There's something else, okay? Yeah. <laughs> so there were there was talk, like we talked about, okay, um, I talked it out with Eric and, and my other friend, Chris Larson, who did his PhD in poltergeists um, and the history of poltergeists and some other people. And, and we tried to discuss how we could possibly do this in the least, you know, most controlled way. So we talked about um, making the alien, maybe he crash landed. Um, he needed our help to get a part or something for his, his spaceship. Um, then, and then we could do that and send him on the way. So it's sort of giving us an authority and a power over this situation. But no matter how I thought about it, I thought there's no way because some of these experiences that people have are quite horrifying and people do, no matter what you want to think of them, um, and I do believe they are having real experiences. Uh, I do too. They, you know, people suffer from post-traumatic stress. People, people's yep. lives are destroyed by this. And I thought, you know, no matter how many controls we try to put on this thing, um, it, it, I don't want to be responsible for, you know, the gray alien crawling in someone's bedroom, you know, six months after the experiments is finished. I, I just, I don't want to harm. Right. Yeah. It's not if worth you're it. creating a tulpa and it, yeah. and it gets loose, you don't want it to be a creepy tulpa to start out with. Exactly. I mean, if they go creepy on their own, that's still not great, but you starting out with one creepy. No. <laughs> yeah. So instead, what we did is, is we, um, we worked on a, a group experiment of trying to create a UFO. Um, we were trying to create a mothership type sighting. We picked uh, a few different locations around the world that where there were known UFO hotspots. And then we put in one as a red herring that was just something that we didn't know. So we, we got all these geo coordinates together as to where we were going to meditate, visualize and send this UFO experience. And, uh, and, and, and we did this for about uh, almost a year, I think. Um, and we would, we would meditate at the same time and we would visualize and we would talk and we would create like narrative art, things like that around it. At the same time, I was working with another group of people creating a completely fictional story uh, about where we were going to send a UFO. And neither group knew of each other. Um, yeah. Yeah. And we started, I started noticing synchronicities between the two groups and I was so excited and I couldn't really talk about them <laughs> <laughs> while, the, while these experiments were ongoing. Right. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. So in the end uh, with, with group A where we were, we were visualizing and we didn't know the location we were going to send the UFO to. I actually got someone who is a UFO experiencer, uh, someone who has had these experiences to take these coordinates literally out of a black velvet bag, 
take one of the coordinates, which I didn't know what they were because I was participating. We, we wanted randomness and spontaneity as much right. as possible. In this. So because I was participating, I couldn't know where it was. So that was taken away. This person didn't know what it, what he was doing. He just literally pulled a, a number out of a bag, gave it to another person who put it away. And that's where it stayed for a year. Um, pretty much about a, it was about a year's time. Uh, so the, the second one we were doing was to try to send a fictional UFO to Norway, to Histalin, Norway, where my husband actually has gone and, and done, um, you know, work research out there on the, the lights. This is a light phenomena that's been going on there for a couple of decades. So we were doing that. And at the same time, I was doing the other thing, which was the visualization. It turned out at the end of the experiment which we, we didn't have a mothership, but what we did have is we had somebody post on Facebook from Norway that they had had this amazing sighting of lights with one of the students there. Um, but they, they were unable to whatever, for whatever reason, capture it on the, on the scientific equipment that they have monitoring. So this was unusual to me. I thought, okay, you've got this really amazing sighting, but it, didn't seem to capture on the cameras or so whatever. I thought, I thought I'm going to, I'm going to close this experiment now because I have this feeling something's going to happen. Sure enough, we were sending a UFO <laughs> to Norway. Now it much like the Owens, it didn't turn out exactly as we wanted much like any magical, you know, working, it never turns out exactly as you want it mm -hmm. to, but it, it worked. We feel that there was some, success there and as well with the second experiment which we we knew that we were sending a ufo to norway but it was all fictionalized it was all taking a story and writing um like fiction back and forth between ourselves so those were the two main experiments that i'm going to write about in the second book um which will be conjuring and manifesting ufos and then i'm working on another one as well concurrently based on all these things so Excellent. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. Yeah. I, so I we'll love see what the comes idea out of, that. of of creating a, a a UFO out of writing about it. Um yeah. that goes back to John yeah, yeah, that goes back to John Keel's story about the apparition of the shadow at William Gibson's home mm -hmm. up in Greenwich Village. Um I always loved that that you know the idea that he with the power of his mind and his writing and his focus, he mm -hmm. could create an apparition. Um, and yeah. so, yeah, I, I, I used to play an online text-based role-playing game where we had people from all over the world on this, you know, one server doing stuff. And um, I, I became one of the staff people and uh, people would come to me. My specific thing that I did was one of the groups that that was in this game were they were playing werewolves. And I was the person that when the werewolves needed to talk to the spirits, I would play the spirits. That was that was kind of my job. So I would come up with the background and and basically would write a little story with these people about the spirits and um weird stuff started to happen you know in different mm -hmm. places and my favorite one uh 
was and the, this person was a friend is a friend of mine so there is that we already had a fairly strong connection um he his character was a very strange mystical wizardly werewolf guy and he always kind of walked that edge of you know the dark and the light so mm -hmm. he would sometimes work with spirits that were not quite on the up and up and nice kind of creatures yeah. and so he he wanted to learn a particular uh magical technique and it had to do with shadows and so you know the the player tells me oh you know i guess we could manifest shadows and the problem is is both he and i are magically adept and and do magic anyway so it got a little too real so we over a period of like three nights we wrote out this this story together um <laughs> and uh you know he learns that magical discipline and so he gets that power in the game and you know he can put the magic whammy down on people much better awesome. you know, <laughs> blah blah you know but it was a very creepy series of of writings because i was really into one of the reasons people liked to write with me is I was really into making it as visceral and real as possible. Mm -hmm. And since I have practice writing fiction, I, I, I'm pretty good at it. And so my friend called me and he said, okay, whatever you did, you got to stop doing it, whatever it is. And I'm like, why? He said, because those creepy shadowy spirit things that, you know, I we called up. Well, I think we actually called them up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he said, because there's these shadows that are following me around my house and I'm not the only one who can see them. And I'm like, okay, let's pull the plug on that right now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> let's let's you know how to cleanse and bless. I will I will give help from my end here, you know, if I have to go down to where you are and deal with it in Portsmouth, I will. Yeah, but let's 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 put the quiet on this now. Exactly. Let's well, dematerialize those. And that's the thing that I think that a lot of the the people that that you know that are nuts and bolts that look into these, whether it's ghosts or spirits or, um, you know, the the UFOs, especially, don't understand that that the hoaxing that's out there. I think it it actually is part of the phenomena. And it, it teases out these things. So you're never going to get rid of it because it's definitely a part of the phenomena itself. And it just, it teases it out. So when you're doing these visualization things, and, and you know what, it's, I just recently started a TikTok. Um, <laughs> I went, I, I started doing a TikTok and I've realized that there are a lot of people, there are a lot of teens out there that are doing these things on TikTok. They're just shifting realities. And it's 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 so cool. But in some ways, it's kind of a bit scary, too, because it's like, you know, if you're going to be doing this imaginative stuff and you're, you're shifting, you're, you're going down these rabbit holes, you better be prepared that, you know, you want to have a good outcome from it. You, you know. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Live that. Listen horn. to the old witches, kids. Yeah, Don't. To the old witches. <laughs> Don't, 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 don't do it that way. Just, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Pull back on that a little bit. Just a yeah. little. Yeah. 
<laughs> yeah. Um, I, I really, really like the idea that um, you, you can change things through, oh, I mean, that's what magic is. It's mm -hmm. focused will, focused intent, um, and then drawing up energy from yourself or another source and then releasing it out mm -hmm. into the ether, out into the world, out into the universe. And then the universe responds and that's where you get that, well, I meant for it to be this way. Yeah. But there's always that little bit, like you said, you know, it never turns out exactly as you envisioned it. It always mm -hmm. comes back a little bit, little wonky. And to me, that's, that's the co-creation part as Greg likes to talk about. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's universe co-creating with you and going, well, you know, I want to add this. And so I'm mm -hmm. gonna, cause I'm the universe and I can do that. And so it does. And then exactly. you get a surprise. <laughs> um, and speaking of tricksters and, and hoaxers and, and tricks, the universe I, I do think is full of trickstery energies and oh, yeah. beings and things and, there's just so many odd things happening. And so this is where we're going to talk about Joe Fisher's book, because I am thrilled that there is another person who has read The Siren Call of Hungry Ghosts, other than Morgana and I. Oh, um, yeah. Yeah, I there's that book. <laughs> I definitely and I suggest everybody. <laughs> yeah, I do recommend it because it is, it is a frightening um, a book. But it's, it's important, especially if you're doing these magical things, because it reminds us to be grounded. And not necessarily is everything, you know, out in the universe, love and light. And the, there's, there's the opposite to these things, too. And in the case of Joe Fisher, how he came to my attention, probably I got the Hungry Ghost book at the same time at the same used bookstore. Because um, <laughs> my, my copy was the Hungry Ghost ones, not the Siren Call. That I think was the second okay. edition. That but was. It, it's it it really it, it didn't change too much. The story is this: Joe Fisher was a charismatic, highly intelligent man from the UK who emigrated at a, at a fairly young age to Toronto, Canada. He quickly rose in his early twenties up to being a, a very prized investigative reported reporter for two of the national uh, papers. Uh, that were being uh, coming out of Toronto as a crime reporter. So he was reporting on the mafia as, as an investigative journalist, uh, as well as other major crimes of the day in the 70s. At the same point, he was very um, uh, excited and interested in the New Age. It was the 1970s. He was interested in reincarnation. He wrote a book. It was so well written on reincarnation. The Dalai Lama uh, himself did the foreword to the book. Uh, and at this time, um, Joe was uh, experimenting with mediumship uh, and channeling and channelers. And he got involved with some, a group in Toronto. And he figured that maybe that the channeling could prove or help to prove reincarnation or through the mediumship, that there could be clues that would help. So at this point, he started investigating this and he was getting all this interesting information. And to, to make a long story short, there were some entities that came through. One of them, a woman who he was told was his love from a past life. 
Um, and he, he literally fell in love with the spirit. Um, he, he, to the detriment of his, his relationships um, with women, uh, you know, living women, he, he started falling in love with the spirit through the, the medium channeler, uh, as well as other spirits. And so as the story goes forward, he decides to investigate some of these claims. He had, he had gone on national television programs in Canada, and he had been attacked by skeptics and he about reincarnation and channeling in general and that. And, and he was, well, you know what, I'm going to go out and prove, I'm going to go out and find these, these people, proof that they existed. So he first went to England because one of these entities was from World War II. So he figured that, um, this person would be easy enough to prove. And he was able to prove a lot of things, but not the exact identity of the person that was apparently coming through the channeler. He then went to Greece where his, his lady love in the spirit world, it was supposed to be someone who had decided not to reincarnate, but to be with him as a spirit guide, so to speak. Um, that uh, he went to Greece to, to try and prove her existence. And all of this information, her name, the town that they were supposedly fell in love with in the 17th century, none of that existed. So he really was upset at this point. He was heart literally heartbroken. He comes back to Toronto and confronts the medium channeler. Now, he doesn't blame the medium. He's not saying that the medium was bad or trying to hoax him or whatever he felt that it was the entities themselves. Now, I, I should also mention at this point, he was raised as in a fundamentalist Christian household, okay? So his mind immediately went to, well, if these, if these things are lying, they're probably demons. They're probably really bad. So this book that he was going to write about reincarnation with this, with this spirit guide, his love from this past life, completely threw that out the window, so to speak, and started writing the Hungry Ghosts book, which literally is a forewarning for people saying, look, if you're going to be channeling things, it might be telling you it loves you and that it's love and light and all this wonderful stuff. But that doesn't necessarily mean it's true. Afterwards, when the Hungry Ghosts book came out, it was optioned to be a film that never took place. He ends up losing his job. He did at some point in all this. He was very good looking, very charismatic man. He had he had many women that were like just chasing after him. He did end up getting married, but the marriage was short lived. It ended up, you know, falling apart. He ended up becoming broke. All these bad things started happening to happening to him after. And he blamed the the entities and, and the book, The Hungry Ghost, saying, okay, I've exposed this now. You know, it's not all love and light in the new age. There's darkness and bad forces. And he felt that he was being psychically attacked. Now, I talked to Joe Wheaton, who was a good friend of his, the, the psychiatrist mm -hmm. from the Philip experiment. Right. They were writing a book together. Um, and, uh, and, and I did ask him, and he did say that, you know, that, that Joe was a troubled person, but he couldn't rule out that maybe something was really psychically attacking Joe. Joe did commit suicide officially. Um, you know, in that, in that era, I think it was 2001, he was um, very, very troubled. He felt haunted. He felt like the, he was being constantly attacked and his life were ruined by these bad entities. So, 
the book Hungry Ghosts uh, is really a cautionary tale. And why I said the officially suicide is there was strange things around his death. He, he fell off a cliff on the Alora Gorge, which I've been to many times. I used to go there as a teenager. In fact, there's little light balls that are there that are spotted there. And they were spotted mm. there before Joe died and after. And he apparently committed suicide by falling off this, this 50 foot cliff and into the, um, the Grand River where his body was found. But when the police investigated this, there were skid marks that almost look, and I've seen the photographs, it almost looks like he's been dragged to the edge of the cliff and there's broken branches around. And the weird thing about it is there's no other footprints, just his. Hmm. So I don't know. I, I don't want to say that, that, you know, but I don't know. There's just a lot of weirdness surrounding this, this whole episode with Joe Fisher. So it's a cautionary tale. Be careful when you're playing with the spirits. Um, and there's a lot of tricksters. Yeah. So, you know, you, you may want to not take everything fully in as, as truth, no matter how lovely it might appear on the surface. Yes, absolutely. Uh, I was reminded of stories of contactees, UFO contactees, who are talking, you know, especially the early ones in the in the 50s and 60s and 70s, who were talking with the Space Brothers, quote unquote. Um, and, you know, they were getting all of these peaceful love and light uh, stories and, and, you know, warnings of ecological disaster and, you know, all, all of the things. And, you know, you should be peaceful and then you can join the Space Federation and blah, 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 blah. But, you know, some of those contactees did not end up very well. You know, so, I mean, some of them were never harmed by, you know, being considered kind of flaky as as you know they were generally treated by the mass media at the time because well <laughs> you know yeah. they're, they're talking to the space brothers and telling everybody it it like it's true but you know some of them did lose their jobs and lose you know their they they their wives would divorce them or they would leave their partner and then they would you know go from job to job and and keel wrote about that he said you know mm -hmm. lots of them end up you know, leaving their life and, and it, it's not like it, they're improving their life by doing this, you know, and he's like, so that makes me wonder what is actually going on. And one of the things that I see in both cases is there's an energy exchange happening mm -hmm. from the humans to what the, whatever they are, the spirits or the space brothers or the non-human intelligences or whatever you want to call them. Um, but there seems to be, because of belief, an energy exchange. So, you know, I just talked about, you know, writing about these spirits and putting belief and intent and energy in it. Well, you know, we kind of accidentally called up something and yeah. we probably fed it that energy. You know, I, I remember the last Christian church I went to regularly was a fundamentalist church. And, and I went because I wanted to see the Holy spirit come down and I wanted to see people speak in tongues. And I just wanted to see all yeah. that, you know, cause Why not? I want to see it. 
because they, but you know, I never saw it. Uh, I was very disappointed. But what I did see was a lot of people who believed very strongly, who spent a lot of time praying. And this is right before I saw the moon do the weird moon thing. And, and so I'd already been reading about this stuff. I'd already been doing magical practice. And I was like, belief is energy. Yeah. And I'm like, and energy is food. Mm -hmm. You know, spirits can't eat food and convert it into energy like we do. They don't have digestive systems. So maybe they eat energy. And yeah. then the people in the church would start talking about Satan, putting them down all the time. Satan, Satan's, Satan's bringing judgment on me. Satan's doing this. Satan's doing that. You know, I tried to, this is one of my favorite examples. This man says, I tried to witness to Jesus at the grocery store and this woman just Satan propelled her away from me. And, and she said I was crazy and not to talk to her. And, and Satan is just bringing me down and I'm sitting there going, dude, she just wanted some green beans. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I'm like, that's all she went. You attacked her in the produce aisle. You accosted her and started talking about. It's not like nobody's talked about Jesus ever in this country. It's not like we've never heard of Jesus. You don't need to witness to Jesus in the grocery store. There are appropriate places to do this. That is not exactly. it. You know, and, and he was like, no, it was Satan. And I'm like, oh, my God, all of you. And I finally just burst out because we were allowed to kind of it was a very odd church we were allowed to just you know say things in the middle of church mm -hmm. and so one day i just popped out with stop talking about satan yeah. whatever you talk about and put energy towards is what you're conjuring you're invoking then wanted, him then they wanted to you know, know why i knew about conjuring and i'm like it's in the bible <laughs> <laughs> it's in the bible it says so do not conjure the the fallen angels it's bad yeah. i was like look talk about jesus talk about jesus's power don't talk about satan's power ignore satan's power get yeah. thee behind me that's what it says in the bible that's what jesus said why don't click yeah this was before <laughs> what would jesus do i could have made millions if i just come up with that you know what yeah. would jesus do bracelet thing but i didn't <laughs> so you know but that's what i think happened with the contactees they were feeding something mm -hmm. and then if they stopped or they they lagged or whatever then sometimes that something would get mad of or it course. was a tricksy something and it was playing with them yeah and, you know we know how cats play with mice it's not well, so good for the mice exactly and it's the same thing with all of these prophets even prophets of of the christian bible in that their lives are not you know wonderful they no. suffer they, they suffer do. to be a prophet so if you're going to be a prophet of the space brothers then there's going to be the other side of it as well and as keel you know wrote it's true people people end up divorced people end up homeless people end up losing their jobs that this is why it's important to be grounded to no matter yeah. what you're involved in whether you're a witch or an occultist or folk magi magician or you're just researching this these things or you're really really into ufos take the time away to just go and do something normal you know yeah. 
go shop for shoes or, or, or go eat something or whatever. Just walk away from it and do some things that are part of this consensus reality. Because if you're always dealing in the other realm, you will become mad. You, yeah, there will, be, there will be consequences that are not good. Yeah, Th there's examples of it, as you say, all through history. It, mm -hmm. Of that's not mm, that's not a good thing. I mean, think of the priestesses at Delphi. They never had days off, right? <laughs> they were just kind of there. Could you get normal speech out of these ladies? No, not generally. Mm -hmm. That's why they had interpreters. Yeah. So, and that's what I think happened with Joe Fisher. I yes. think that that circle of people and you can if you're if you read carefully, you can see the manipulations happen in quote unquote real time as you're reading mm -hmm. it. And you, you can you're just it's almost like a thriller. I can see why somebody wanted to make it into a movie. Yeah, because I haven't I, I mean, I gave you a just a, a, a fine example, like a just touching the surface. I do recommend reading the book. Because yes, I, I haven't absolutely. read it in more than 20 years. I actually read it every five or six years or so just to. Every time I might go overboard, if I feel like I might be going overboard, I, I'll whip that book out and read it and go, yep, nope, not going to do that. Mm, nope. Yeah. Just <laughs> um, be very careful. Yeah. Just don't, don't fall into that. And uh, it really is a cautionary tale. It's just interesting that, you know, since I've started doing the podcast, I'll talk with authors and things. Nobody's ever heard of that book. And so when you talked with Anthony Peak, you mentioned it. I'm like, oh, my God, somebody else has read it. Yay. Because <laughs> uh, it is such a it's a good story. And he was such a good writer. Yeah, exactly. Um, Exactly. And he was a great journalist too. I read some of her, some of his articles are still on the internet. You know, you can, you can look them up. I was a journalist way back in the day and he was really good at it. And, and then you see what happened and it's just like, Oh, it's a very like, tragic. It's, it's, uh, he, it's painful. Exactly. And even with the death being so mysterious, it, it's always yeah. going to be that way. And you know, it is, it is a cautionary tale. So you know, people should get, they, they should, it's, it's been redone. I think the anomalist press has put out the siren call of the hungry ghost. So you can get it online. Um, it, I think it's worthwhile. It's, it should be in everybody's library. That's into this sort of thing, working with spirits, channeling, and especially now, like uh, it's, it's with, um, synchronicity that sort of brought up uh, Joe Fisher back into my mind um, recently. And so I take it as a cautionary tale as well, because now we see a lot of the Space Brothers stuff. People are downloading the aliens. They're not channeling anymore, but they're downloading, which is the same thing <laughs> pretty much. And it's yeah. a lot of Space Brothers again. So there Maybe is that's... a lot of belief in that. And I listen to <laughs> I the old get, witches. <laughs> the old witches go, mm, I don't know about that. I don't yeah. know about all that. Um, and yeah, it, it makes me uncomfortable. That's, that's how I'll say it. It makes me yeah. uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And I worry about people. Um, and I can hear Keel in the back of my head going, no, don't do that. No, no, no. <laughs> stop, stop, stop. No, okay. no. Well, Keel knew. He knew. Yeah, he knew. He did. Yeah, he did. And sometimes he went overboard too. 
remember you know how he got really kind of cranky and crotchety near the end of his publishing career i mean he was still doing articles but he hadn't had books come out and you know every interview you saw with him he was just cranky crotchety and and unhealthy and not bringing in much money and yeah, yeah it was like dude you need a new you need you a gotta, hobby yeah you, you gotta ground you yourself you gotta shut that shite down yep go go see a movie dude go do a thing yeah something <laughs> it's important mm -hmm. yeah i think so well is there anything else that you'd like to tell our our listeners i'd love to have you back um because that I way would, you can meet the other two hosts i would love to come back at some point that would be uh, great yeah, um, right now, if you want to snoop around my online cupboard, it's susandemeter.com. Um, there's links to all sorts of my social media and things I'm doing right now. And uh, and I am working on a new book. Um, I was going to do the, the Conjuring UFO books first, but I think I'm going to write a book on Ghost and Hauntings experience. I don't know if it's Joe Fisher. Again, it's it's sort of tripped into my purview recently a little unexpectedly but lately i've been considering more about apparitions and things like that so i might do a, a book on ghosts and hauntings first and looking at it through the the lenses of the witch um so maybe do some analysis on some of the older cases that you know that looking at it from a different great. perspective yeah so it'd be kind of like similar to what um eric did with illuminations only more geared towards the ghostly experience and then, of course, Conjuring UFOs. I'm still doing all that kind of stuff. I, I'm really interested in people's experiences still. Um, you can contact me through my website. I'm really, I, I love hearing about the high strange stuff. Um, yeah. If there's no high strangeness, I think it's probably misidentified something or other. All the real cases seem to have that some taboo yeah. or something weird that's associated with it. Or like I said, the person grew up, you know, with ghosts or whatever, and then saw a UFO. <laughs> I'm interested is, in all that stuff. That's been my experience. Again, Keel noticed that too. You know, you have to ask the extra questions mm -hmm. or, uh, you know, just talk more openly generally with your your witnesses and then you'll start getting the well you know my grandma was psychic and mm -hmm. uh and 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 uncle joe douses and you know this and that and and then that's when the stories start coming out and i grew up in appalachia so you know that's prime primo oh, magic oh yeah there's yeah. there's there was folk magic everywhere and and everybody was seeing ufos in the 70s and and had started seeing them in the 50s and and my mm -hmm. family all if they hadn't seen something they knew somebody who had seen something yeah so yeah and i i just think of west virginia as a repository of high strangeness anyway so absolutely it is an <laughs> odd odd place okay well thank you again for being with us uh with me i'm speaking in the royal we apparently um you your book cosmic witch magic witchcraft and the supernatural is phenomenal i highly suggest everyone read it um and i do hope you come back i will and absolutely I, you, I, 
want to meet the other hosts too. Uh, yeah. It, it works it's, out. And when you can, it'll be fun. Well, that's all for this week's episode of the Six Degrees of John Keel podcast. If you have any questions or thoughts about the podcast or would like to come and talk about your experiences of the paranormal, you can contact us at 6djk67 at gmail.com. We promise to even answer you, and we are always happy to hear from you. Thank you. Thank you.